Before we start today's podcast, I just want to take a moment to say that this will be the last Parasports Nutrition podcast for a period of time. I'm going to take a break. I started this podcast just over two years ago. It was a brainchild of mine while sitting in quarantine for two weeks after the Tokyo Paralympic Games. And I just wanted to find a way of providing information to athletes, coaches and practitioners that was easily accessible, but focused on sports performance aspects with a nutrition lens in para-athletes. Hopefully I've succeeded in doing so. I want to thank everyone who has listened throughout the series and anyone who's just listened to one of the podcasts. Hopefully the range of topics that people I've spoken to and the depth of the interviews has been sufficient that you have gained some knowledge and sense of the nuances around para-sport and how we make para-athletes better athletes. I hope you enjoy this final podcast for this period of time. I'm not saying I'm stopping completely, but but if anyone wants to take on interviewing someone, I'm more than happy to facilitate that and put it up on this podcast so it won't be disappearing from your sound waves forever. Uh, you can contact me through the Podbean website that houses this podcast. Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today is my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Steve Reed. Dr. Reed is a sport and exercise physician. He is the Chief Medical Officer for Paralympics Australia and has worked with many sports within New Zealand and Australia, including currently being at the Australian Open Tennis Tournament. Steve believes that exercise is medicine and we are looking forward to having a great chat with him about medical issues that he sees with Paralympic athletes. So welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thank you, Liz. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me along. Oh, it's fantastic to have you. To get us started, though, can you give us a bit of background on yourself and how you got into being a sports medicine physician? Yeah, so I initially trained in medicine in the United Kingdom and having finished my medical degree in a situation where I didn't get a lot of exposure to sport and exercise medicine, I took a job in New Zealand for a while thinking I would go for a couple of years and and then return to the UK. But as life sometimes happens, I Mm -hmm. uh, got to New Zealand and really liked spending time there, became increasingly exposed to sport and exercise medicine and decided to pursue that career path. That was in the early 90s. At that stage, sport and exercise medicine was often, it was often pursued by general practitioners who'd done a sports medicine diploma. So it was a sort of general practice with an interest, which is how I initially got involved. And then once I became aware of the College of Sport and Exercise Physicians, I did their fellowship training. So my early years in sport and exercise medicine were in New Zealand came to Australia to finish off my fellowship training and moved to to Hobart uh, with a young family and we really loved living in Tasmania and that was where we spent 
our next 20 years as our as our children grew up and i became i i started traveling with rowing in 2013 and that was my first real exposure to because yeah my first real exposure to paralympic sport was in the rowing sort of scene Mm -hmm. Um, rowing often travel you know it's able-bodied and para events at the same regatta and so i became increasingly exposed to to para sport that way later on became more involved with been doing tennis medicine for a long time and I've been at the AO for the last seven years and we have some amazing wheelchair athletes here. Mm-hmm. That was a, another sort of avenue of becoming increasingly involved with para-sport. And then a few years ago, had the opportunity to start working with Paralympics Australia and the uh, amazing experience of going to the Winter Games in Beijing in 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just been a, a, a gradual progression um, yep. of becoming involved. Great. And so I guess through that experience, what do you see as being some key medical issues that come up in para-athletes that you perhaps don't see as much or see the outcomes come out in a different way compared to able-bodied athletes? I think something that we've spent a lot of time working on not just myself, this was a group sort of centred out of the Australian Institute of Sport and also my predecessor at Paralympics Australia, Dr Rachel Harris. There's been some work on skin pressure injury management, what well, prevention and management. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that for athletes who have spinal cord injuries and therefore spend time in wheelchairs uh, and for those with, who are amputees and who wear prostheses, skin pressure injuries are an issue that we see in the para-sport space that we don't see with anything like the same frequency in the able-bodied sport space. Yep. And I think a, a skin pressure injury can completely derail an athlete's competition, preparation, and have major ramifications. We were just about to publish the results of putting together a paper both uh, instructing people on how to manage the first signs of skin pressure injury, but also some athlete-facing material to try and assist with prevention. So certainly, yeah, the, the skin pressure injury would be a thing mm-hmm. more frequently. In some athletes who have difficulty, yeah, who don't have as great an ease of getting to the bathroom on, on planes, yep. they will sometimes underhydrate and therefore expose themselves to probably increased risk of uh, urinary tract infection um, yeah. and that's that's a sort of a multifaceted thing really they they'll be athletes who need to self-catheterize which obviously has a, a risk of introducing infection to the bladder yeah. uh, um, but if you opt to underhydrate and sit in your airline seat for 12 14 16 hours to avoid using the bathroom then and I, you know, that's understandable that you'd rather not have to move if you don't have to but it means that there's a lot of urinary stasis and then increases the risk of a UTI. So those will be a couple of things. Mm-hmm. I think for also for athletes who are confined to a wheelchair and therefore not loading their lower limbs in a normal way, then low bone mineral density and increased, yep. increased risk of a fracture in lower limb bones is, is an issue that we certainly need to consider as well. 
And just staying on that, we'll, we'll go through each one, I think, because each of them has a nutrition component to it. But why don't we start with the bone density? Because some people who, who don't know the area well may say, well, if they've got no neural sensation and can't feel that bone injury, what's the problem? So what's the ramifications of, of having a bone break in someone who has a spinal cord injury? when the bone is in their lower limbs? I think that even if the athlete is, is not necessarily aware that there has been a bone injury, I think there can still be input to the central nervous system that can result in a stimulus that might cause a condition such as autonomic dysreflexia and they mm. put up their blood pressure to a dangerous level and expose them to quite significant health risks. I think yeah. that you know an unrecognized fracture, uh, if it goes on and heals in a poor position, can cause poor limb alignment, and you know if there's significant callus formation around there, can result in increased pressure, you know, in the tissues overlying that. So I think there's there's a number of reasons that it it can still be a significant issue for the athlete. Yeah, and. You know, with that low bone density, we know that a lot of that reduction in bone density happens initially following whatever the cause of the spinal cord injury is, assuming that it's an acquired injury, but also it's exacerbated by the fact that they're not load-bearing in those lower limbs. Do you think we can reverse the low bone density or do you think we can slow the reduction in bone density in individuals who aren't able to load bear in those limbs? I'm, I'm not aware that we can reverse the, the low bone density without. I, I think that would require considerable effort to provide bone stimulus in, in a frequent fashion. You know, I think the, the really important things that, are, that can be addressed are maintaining strength around the, the lower trunk and hips to try and maintain bone density in the, in the lumbar spine uh, yeah. and thoracic spine. I, I certainly haven't come across a setting where athletes consistently try and maintain lower limb bone density if they're wheelchair dependent. But in terms of maintaining that bone density in the lower spine, in the lumbar spine and perhaps in the in the hips, obviously the more active they are, we know activity and, and the novel pull of muscles on bone definitely help with bone density. Uh, what are some other strategies that we can use to make sure that we're looking after the bone density as much as possible? Yeah, I think, you know, we want to... I think across all of these issues, we want to make sure that the athlete has a well-balanced, nutritionally complete diet. I think across the board, you want to make sure that athletes maintain a, a vitamin D level of, that's in a you know a very replete level. My preference is to see that the athlete's level is sort of seventy-five or above. We want to make sure that the athletes maintaining good calcium intake, mm -hmm. particularly for athletes that have any intolerances i'd like a sports dietitian involved so if they're you know if they're lactose intolerance that they, the athlete's getting good guidance around how to maintain a, an adequate calcium intake and you know similarly anyone who has a, a diet where they're excluding food types from their diet they're making sure that they've 
well advised that they're maintaining an adequate protein intake and that all of their micronutrients are, are maintained at a good level. Hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I think there's plenty we can do to sort of try and uh, maintain uh, appropriate bone health, as you say, with a combination of exercise but also a, a well-balanced complete diet. Yep. And if we go back to the other two components that you were talking about earlier, the skin pressure injuries and the urinary tract infections, I believe with the strategies, this, you mentioned that you're just about to publish a paper in terms of prevention and, and management of skin pressure injuries. Is there a nutrition component to that paper and, and to you know, some nutrition strategies in terms of prevention and management of skin pressure injuries? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we have, we've been fortunate to have uh, Siobhan Crochet, a sports dietitian who's uh, very familiar to you. Uh, yep, and uh, to the podcast, <laughs> the podcast <laughs> she's been on. Yeah. She's been involved in the, in the project throughout and, and has written the, the nutrition section to that. And, you know, you know, once again, I think for, for all of these things, not only for, for injury prevention, but injury recovery and, and performance generally, making sure that people have that well-balanced, nutritionally complete diet, I think, is, is fundamental. Mm-hmm. I think from the, from the point of view of the skin pressure injuries, you know, being attentive to making sure that we're not getting significant weight fluctuations is important. We need, for instance, you know, the areas that, that we see the skin pressure injuries are, are over bony prominences. So for someone in a, in a wheelchair, you know, over the ischial tuberosities, around the great canters, over the, over the sacrum. So it really helps to have sufficient subcutaneous, um, equally, we don't want excessive subcutaneous tissues such that it's causing additional pressure there. But I do think one of the things that I'm concerned about when I see athletes with injuries is that they will think, well, I'm not training, therefore I'm not consuming energy the way I need to or I normally would, and therefore I need yeah. to uh, cut back on my input. And I must say, with significant injuries I, I for able-bodied and, uh, and para-athletes, you know, I always underline the fact that we don't heal as well unless we're maintaining a positive energy balance. So, yeah. um, you know, maintenance of a, of a good nutrient intake is, uh, is really important. So, so yeah, we do, I'm keen to avoid uh, significant weight fluctuations and making sure particularly that people don't lose weight and put themselves in a, a negative energy state. I think maintaining hydration is important, not only during our daily training environment, but if we rely on hydration to maintain our cardiac output and therefore distribution of blood and, and nutrients out to our tissues. So that's you know, fundamentally important. We maintain our, our hydration, mm. but also so that we maintain a good tissue turgor. If we're underhydrated and our tissue turgor goes down and we're dealing with a skin pressure injury, then that's just compounding the problem. You know, that particularly applies, you know, we referred earlier to, to travel. Uh, sitting yep. on airplanes for long periods, you know, maintaining a good hydration level and, and tissue turgor level, I think, is, uh, is is important in that context as well. So, you know, coming circling back to your point, you know, what do we want to do nutritionally for the skin pressure injuries? Well, we want to have a, a positive energy balance. Certainly, you know, talking to Siobhan, I'm very aware that we want to maintain an, an adequate protein intake. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the figures that I'm aware of are a protein intake of between 1.5 and 2 grams per kilo per day. And then, you know, I think there's also, there's also evidence around the fact that we need things like vitamin C as a, as a cofactor for collagen synthesis and an adequate zinc level because there's some evidence that in a, in a situation where you've got zinc deficiency, then, then you'll get poor wound healing. So really keep, you know, I keep circling back to that point that a well-balanced, nutritionally complete diet is, is important. But I think, you know, in, in, the, in a circumstance where you're dealing with, with a skin pressure injury, which has so many impacts across uh, an athlete's life, not just their sporting life, their whole life, then I'm yeah. making sure that that person you know, has has access and a consultation with a sports dietitian so that they they that they're confident that they're um, they're doing all that all that they can. It's not just about applying dressings and you know making sure that the wound doesn't get infected. Make sure this thing heals as as completely and as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. Because as you say, the the impact like the management means that they have to be off that area of pressure which means out of their chair or not having their prosthesis on, and that then has huge ramifications in terms of their ability to, to train, you know, the, the amount of time that they can spend training and, and whether they can actually train because of the, the need to relieve the pressure whilst the, that injury is being healed. Yeah, totally. And, you know, if you look at athletes that the podium at a major games, the athletes that podium at a major games are those athletes that have over the preceding 12 to 24 months completed 85 90 percent of their prescribed training load so absolutely start compromising your training modifying your training and not getting through the prescribed training load your chances of podiuming or even putting down a a personal best start to erode very quickly so Mm. yeah very very important firstly to try and prevent these things but once uh, you know but equally important that we're able to kind of identify the first signs and, and manage these things and then if the unfortunate circumstance arises that somebody does develop skin pressure injury that we're we're fully on board in terms of all the different aspects of health care and, and support uh, that we need to provide to the athlete and you know, and that there's so many different things you can do in that space. We can, you know, in terms of prevention, we can utilize people like Stephen Wilson, who's a, a seating specialist, who can look at pressure mapping of athletes sitting on, on in their chair and on mm-hmm. on plane seats, and you know, and then advise how we can best protect. And you know, custom uh, custom cushions for plane seats and for, for wheelchairs can be fantastic, and certainly. There was work done between the London Olympics and the Rio Olympics four years later that, you know, reduced uh, the incidence of skin pressure injuries. So, yeah, very important part of what we do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess with the urinary tract infections, if we also sort of look at that side of things, I mean, you mentioned that hydration was important for skin turgor and, and for the tissue turgor. And obviously hydration is important for a, a range of things and prevention of urinary tract infections. You mentioned the long haul travel was a, a higher risk environment for developing urinary tract infections. And certainly in practice, we've seen athletes arriving and then having issues over the next few days. Some athletes choose not to drink, and, and I can understand that. But do you think that there's a better strategy than just 
not drinking for that 24 hours that you're traveling? Do you think the use of catheters is is a better option under those circumstances? Or what are your thoughts on that side of things? Yeah, I think we sh- we need to be encouraging the athletes to to maintain hydration, but but I think we need to assist them. You know, we need to be liaising with the airline to make sure that athletes who need assistance to transfer from their seat to the bathroom on the plane, that those athletes are seated in a situation where they're close to the bathroom, so that mm. the, the the transfer distance is minimised. The airline whatever cooperation they can provide in terms of assisting the athlete get to the bathroom i think is uh, is important so yeah I, mean, I can certainly understand why it's preferable or why an individual would prefer to just underhydrate and then not have to leave their seat but if they the consequence to them is they develop a, a urinary tract infection obviously that can have a devastating consequence for them in terms of their recovery from travel and their uh, ability then to finalise their preparations for competition. So, I think making it easier for them to get to the bathroom, so they're more they've got greater confidence to maintain hydration, go to the bathroom, catheterise. Then I think you know that that's how we how we need to be approaching it. Again, I think the the issue of maintaining good nutrient intake throughout the flight um, mm-hmm. is important as well. There's an association between poor nutritional status and, and UTIs. And although yeah. that might be, you know, that probably that may not apply necessarily just over a 24-hour period. But again, if, a, if an athlete undernourishes for a 24 or 48-hour travel period, then that's, that's not setting them up for great recovery when they get on the ground and are trying to, you know, then get prepared for a, for a major competition. I'm, I'm aware that there's some... Some data out there, and your you and Chavon would be better placed to comment on this than I probably. But there is, you know, there is evidence around cranberries protecting against or cranberry juice protecting against recurrent UTIs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the theory is that, or the, the science would suggest that cranberries limit the bacterial adherence to the epithelial cells lining the urinary tract, particularly for organisms like E. coli. One of the recommendations that I'm aware of is having 250 mils of 25% pure juice. And now I think some people get some gut intolerance as a result of that. So it's certainly something you wouldn't try on your first first time getting on a plane. It's something that you would definitely experiment with during a training block when you're at home. But, you know, I think that there are things that people can at least look at to to try and protect themselves from developing a UTI. Yeah. And, you know, as you say, there there are ways of hydrating without necessarily putting someone in a position where they have to use the bathroom frequently. Yeah. You know, we've used electrolytes strategically during long haul travel to try and it may provide an extra few hundred mils of fluid, but that may be enough to, to prevent substantial dehydration and yet at the same time not enforce multiple trips to the bathroom so i think there's definitely ways of playing around with the way they consume fluids the type of fluids whether they have them with food you know there's there's lots of strategies that athletes can trial to find a better place to sit in in terms of that hydration 
achievement and minimization of risk. Yeah, and I think something that that I didn't mention, and and I'm sure you concur, is that you know avoidance of heavily caffeinated drinks mm. leading up to a plane flight and during a plane flight, given that caffeine is a diuretic, yeah, um, you know, is is a nice, straight, easy means of again making it less likely that you'll need to go to the bathroom. And the, and the spin-off from that also is that you know we're always keen where athletes can rest and, and get some sleep on a plane. Mm. Reducing their caffeine intake around the time of long-haul flights, then again, that's going to assist with them getting some sleep on a plane. Yeah, I love strategies that have multiple impacts. <laughs> yeah. 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 Fantastic. If we kind of stay on this topic a little bit because, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times or a number of times now that it's really important to make sure that you've got a nutritionally balanced diet and sufficient energy for healing if, if, if it's a wound, for minimising major weight fluctuations. Do you feel that you see a higher predominance of underfueling in para-athletes in terms of if we go to the concept of low energy availability, which is a topic we've talked about on, on the podcast previously? Do you feel as though there's a, a higher propensity of of para-athletes to perhaps underestimate what their calorie needs are to slightly under-fuel, um, particularly in times when they're not as active and as a consequence have greater difficulty actually achieving their nutritional balance because achieving all your nutrient needs requires a minimum amount of calories to be coming in anyway. Like it's difficult to hit iron requirements if you're not eating enough total calories and it's not easy to meet certain nutrients without eating enough calories. Do you think that's a higher concern in para-athletes or of equal concern to what you've seen in able-bodied athletes? I wouldn't at this point say that it's a higher concern, but I, the thing I am concerned about is, is that I my feeling is it's not thought about enough in the para-athlete space. Mm. I think there's a massive amount of research going on in the Red S space for able-bodied athletes. Yeah. And, you know, so we've got masses of publications. We've got screening tools that, that can be applied. We don't at the moment have any validated screening tools for para-athlete space. Well, I think overall, the amount of research that's been done uh, in the para-athlete space is only a, a fraction of what's been done in the able-bodied space. So I think, it, you know, my, my time in para-sport, I think uh, I've definitely worked with athletes where one of my concerns is whether they, they have adequate uh, energy availability. I don't think we really at the moment have an idea or, or yeah, good data on, on, on just how what the prevalence of red S is and, and poor energy availability. I mean, I guess for people working in the parasport space, my request or you know, my suggestion would be to at least make sure that you're thinking about that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think, you know, I've worked a lot in, uh, in, in sort of able-bodied sports where athletes are having to move their body weight, you know, distance runners and, and triathletes and cyclists where, for sure, I've had concerns around uh, energy availability. I think the same in some of the lightweight rowers that I've worked with over time. So I'm very aware of 
red S in that able-bodied space. Yep. But having you know, having had increasing involvement and, you know, I've sort of been CMO now for Paralympics Australia for a couple of years, so increasingly involved uh, in a day-to-day, week-to-week basis with para-sport. Certainly, I don't have any less concerns around yep. around red S uh, in, in the para-sport space. Cool. Yeah, and, you know, and so certainly, you know, I, I think... And that's, you know, I remember when we first spoke when you invited me to do the podcast with you at some stage. I mean, that was one of the things that I, I mentioned first up to you was that it's, it's understandable that individuals who normally are training two, three, four hours a day would think, well, my training's significantly compromised. I'm only doing a quarter of what I would, uh, would normally mm. be doing. Therefore, I need to sort of drastically cut back on my my nutritional input and uh, and i'm you know every uh, you know every significant episode where people are going to have to modify their training that's one of the one of my touch points is to make is to say look it's really important here that you don't that you don't allow yourself to drop into a, a negative energy balance state and uh, you know for athletes who who are in a an institute sort of set up where they've got ready access to sports dietitians and, and they may already have a, a sports dietitian that they're regularly working with and they'd be some of our bigger para sports you know athletics swimming cycling where people are in an institute set up and, and they have a lot of support around them it's far easier for us to kind of arrange for them to have a, a, some ongoing follow-up with the dietitian just to make sure that yeah. their, um, their nutrition around the time that they're working through an injury and recovering that they're nutrition maintained but it's our smaller sports who uh, probably don't have as big a budget some of them are working outside of the institute setup that's where i, I think we probably need to sit to those kind of services mm, yeah absolutely great can we change tack a little bit in terms of we've spoken a lot about issues that relate more predominantly to individuals who are wheelchair-bound or spinal cord injured. What about other aspects of parasport, so cerebral palsy, MS, amputees, vision impaired, any any other medical concerns that you see or issues that seem to come up during a major games that are different perhaps than what you'd see in an able-bodied population? Yes, I think. Maybe we kind of go through those, you know, one at a time. I mean, certainly the condition like multiple sclerosis, where people often on medications that are associated with some immune suppression. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, again, circling back to that nutritionally complete, well-balanced diet, I think is fundamental. But, um, you know, certainly... Some of the athletes with MS would regularly have uh, touch points with a sports dietitian to to make sure that anything that can be done to maintain their immune system uh, is addressed. You know, again, coming back to some of those micronutrients such as zinc and and vitamin C. You know, there's some evidence around vitamin C taken prophylactically being protective against developing other respiratory infections. Zinc certainly seems to have a protective benefit in that space as well as, as touched on earlier, you know, involved with, with collagen synthesis and, and, mm. and tissue repair. So, yeah, I think that would certainly be a space that I think, you know, where nutrition is important. 
some of our cerebral palsy athletes there. I think their energy demands need looking at carefully because their increased muscle tone means that a lot of their muscle is not ever resting fully. Yep. So make, making sure early on in the piece that, that their energy intake balances their, their requirements, I think, is, is important. Some of the amputees often are wearing prostheses. So again, the same conversations that we've had around skin pressure uh, injuries comes into place. But one thing we haven't sort of touched on, but I think is uh, is important here, is that some of the you know, some of our wheelchair athletes, but also some of our amputees, will be at times using crutches and therefore putting increased load on on their shoulders and mm-hmm. rotator cuff injuries. And you know, again, making sure that all of those anything that can be done to maintain good tissue health is addressed yep you referenced visual impairment and i guess one of my big pieces of work in the last 12 months has been really around continuing to develop a concussion policy and uh, Mm. concussion is a an issue that particularly for some of our visual impaired athletes can be uh, you know there's, there's increased risk there and i'm sure that you know significant concussions have a Again, an important to maintain that kind of well balanced nutrient space following that kind of injury as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's there's some interesting work in that area. Just also the the symptoms of concussion can sometimes impact on the ability to eat because there's a you know for some individuals there may be some nausea, some uh, higher sensitivity to smells, and the need for making sure that you've got. Uh, strategies around modifying diet in order to to manage some of those symptoms that are, can occur with with a concussion as well. Oh, absolutely! I mean, appetite loss, you know, goes along with it. A whole raft of symptoms that, particularly for those, I mean, it, it's one thing if it's a concussion that recovers in two or three days, but for mm. those people where the symptoms drag on for four, six, eight weeks before they're fully recovered, you know, if you if you lose your appetite and, and and lose motivation simply to get into the kitchen to prepare food um, yeah. can really have a knock-on effect with regard to your nutritional state. Absolutely. Wow. There's lots of things to think about, isn't there? Oh, there are. <laughs> <laughs> and we haven't even touched on medications or anything like that. So um, there's obviously you know some medications that can in- interact with nutrients and interact with appetite and so there's a whole gamut of areas where you can, you as a medical practitioner can also liaise with a sports dietitian in conjunction with the athlete to come up with strategies to manage some of the things that they're, they're working through. Yeah, and I, I guess, Liz, that just kind of highlights the point that and one of the great things about sport and exercise medicine is that we work as multidisciplinary teams and you know, we're very fortunate in that space and particularly with the, the institute set up in, in Australia, we, we have these great colleagues that we can reach out to and, you know, none of us practice in isolation and I think having the, the confidence to go, okay, well, this is now, you know, I've got some nutrition as a sport and exercise physician, you know, we do, do nutrition modules doing our training, but mm. that doesn't make me a sports dietitian by any means, yeah. you know, so I think knowing when we're kind of getting to the edge of our knowledge and, uh, and, and our ability to appropriately advise people, I think it's uh, is important to go, okay, well, now I need to reach out to one of my colleagues and link you in and, uh, 
yeah, and that's one of the fantastic aspects of the work we do, that we do work in multidisciplinary teams and we pick up the phone and, and, and talk to one another or sometimes, you know, just walk down the corridor and talk to one another. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some people have that, that luxury. Steve, what recommendations do you have for young and upcoming sports physicians who may be interested in getting into working with para-athletes? Where, where do you see opportunities for, for that to happen? Well, I think, I think with an upcoming home games in 2032. <laughs> I think or if you're in the US in 2028. In 2028, no, that's right. I think firstly, para-sport is a fantastic space to work in. I, I really enjoy all the contacts that I make, the, the athletes, the coaches, uh, the fantastic multidisciplinary teams that we work in. So I'd, I'd really encourage people to consider getting involved in the para space. And if you come forward, put your hand up with different sports and, and approach people, I, I, I guarantee you're not going to get knocked back um, mm. because there's so much para sport out there that that needs people with skills and that would certainly welcome approaches to, to work in the para sport space and the reality is that in 2032 all of the sports will have representative teams from australia so as we work towards paris in later this year mm-hmm. australia will have teams qualifying we think in 17 sports out of 22 yeah um, Whereas because we're the home nation in 2032, Australia will get an entry into all sports. Every sport, so, yeah. Every sport. So what's going to happen over the next eight, nine years is that there's going to be a drive to develop you know, skilled athletes across all of those areas. But we're going to need the support people to look after those people and make sure that those athletes stay well uh, and compete at the top of their game. So there's going to be an increasing amount of para sport and there'll be people who really see their opportunity to go to a home games in, in 2032 so yeah look i think certainly for anyone interested reach out either through paralympics australia or through your local institute of sport there'll be people working in the para space and you can contact them and, uh, and say i'm interested are there uh, areas where you need where you need some assistance but i i must say i uh, I've worked, you know, and I continue to work in the able-bodied and and para space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love working in both, but certainly I thoroughly encourage anyone who wants to get involved in para sport to do so. I must say I'm currently in the midst of, as you mentioned, working at the Australian Open and the, the wheelchair tennis starts today. Mm-hmm. I've had uh, dealings with a number of the athletes over the last four or five days since they arrived. The skills of these athletes is uh, is amazing to witness, really. So, uh, yeah, wonderful area to work in, Liz. Yeah, and I guess that, uh, you know, that same concept applies throughout the world. There's always new events, new opportunities that are presenting, and it's a matter of just you know, putting your hand up and reaching out to, to some colleagues in that area and and. There's plenty of opportunities to be had. I think it's it's underserviced in all aspects, and so I think those opportunities will be there regardless of which country you live in. Absolutely, yeah. Fantastic. Well, Steve, I know you've got a, a busy afternoon, and I really appreciate your time. I guess you'd never get away without the final question, though. What's your favourite food? 
Oh, I wasn't expecting that one. I would, yeah. I, well, I'd have to go, I'm going to go my favorite protein, which is fish. Huh? And, and within, within fish, I would have to go with salmon. I, uh, been 20 years living and working in Tasmania in the sea. Yes. He is, uh, he's sensational. But if I yep. had to pick one that we consistently have at home and which I love cooking, it would be salmon. Awesome. Fantastic. And all, all the better for all their good fish oils, which helps win a lot of the things that we've been talking about as well in terms of healing and potentially brain and, and concussions. So it means you're optimising your, your well-being in that space. Fantastic. So now I can feel even better about it every time I cook it and eat it. <laughs> well, thanks, Steve, for your time, your expertise, your passion. We really appreciate the input that you've had and the work that you continue to do, and we look forward to, to more great things coming. All right. Thanks, Liz. Lovely to talk to you.